Welcome to our Palm Sunday worship. And I, I, I echo what Pastor Dennis said. It is a joy to be here. And of course, Jesus didn't announce it as Palm Sunday for the calendar when he came in and got that name because of the crowds waving the palm branches, welcoming King Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. And it made me think of March Madness going on as we've been watching that. I don't know if you're, you keep up with that at all. But every round that you go through in the tournament as you get to the Sweet 16 and the Elite 8 and the Final Four and the championship game, the, the stakes get higher. And I don't know if you noticed this, but the, the TV networks amplify the significance of the occasion, the player introductions, the special montage videos and highlight reels and and the special celebrities that give commentary and then they tell you about these coaches, they tell you about these players. You and I had no desire to know these players and coaches up until a month ago. And then March Madness hits and now, yeah, I want to know about the Florida Atlantic Owls. Yeah, I almost didn't even know they existed until they made it to the final four. Now I want to, yeah, tell me about their coach, tell me about their players. So those player introductions have a lot more significance when they're the ones entering the court in the Final Four. Now, of course, we have the championship game coming up this week. But imagine with me, and, and I don't think it's too big of a stretch, Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. And up to this point, people knew about him. Some people were eyewitnesses to his miracles. Other people just heard he was a good teacher, good prophet. The crowds are very mixed as to who Jesus is. They're confused. And no one, I mean, they really weren't planning to arrange their schedule around the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem. But these people start coming over from Bethany. And they say, you've got to see this. There's something happening. And, and, and there's something significant happening. And, and you hear that noise out there. And, and the shopkeepers are kind of looking. And they're, they're looking out. And the people who are walking through the streets are now congregating to the east side of Jerusalem. And we're told there's this special scene unfolding and the crowds are assembling. Most of them don't even know what's going on. But we have the Gospel of Matthew. We have the Word of God telling us exactly what Palm Sunday is about. Who Jesus is. He is formally introducing himself as the King of Israel. And he's riding in to find his people and that they would find him and that he would save them from their sins. And so I'm going to read for us Matthew 21, verses 1 through 17. It is a longer passage, but it's a narrative. It's a story. You've got to hear the whole story. And that's why I invite you, uh, grab a, a Bible off of the back table or look it up on your phone and read along. So you don't uh, you know, let your mind wander. It's such an important entrance. This introduction is worth it because the king is here. And when the king shows up, we want to take notice. So let me read those first 17 verses of Matthew 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, this is Jesus and his disciples, and they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And that prophet would be Zechariah. Saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, 
the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them there, he went out to the city of Bethany and lodged there. So here's the main point of this so important narrative. And it is that on Palm Sunday, Jesus came to claim his crown and set up his kingdom. And he would do it in a way that no one expected. But he came to claim his crown and set up his kingdom. So make no mistake, Jesus comes to claim his crown. He is king. He's not waiting in line for someone else to get out of the way. He's been king the whole time. Now he's just formally introducing himself. You could call it, or theologians call it, the formal presentation of the king of Israel to his nation. And as we know the story, Israel will reject him. But this is the king. It's a significant point in his ministry because up to this point, Jesus did not come riding in with authority and, and throwing his weight around and saying, this is who I am. Now is the time for you to accept me. He taught, he healed, he preached, but because it is the passion week and because in God's sovereignty, he is going to go to the cross. Now he rides in formally in triumph. He's coming through the east gate of Jerusalem. So if, uh, if, if Jerusalem is an upside down arrowhead here, typically you would, you would come down and you'd go up the, the southern gate or the northern gate, the sheep gate. Jesus comes over the Mount of Olives, winding down the trail on a donkey, and he comes in the east gate to enter into the temple. Now, did you think it was interesting how many verses were spent talking about his mode of transportation? He's riding on a donkey. Okay. <laughs> I, why, are we, why are we spending so much ink on a donkey? Because a donkey is a beast of burden. It's not a victor's horse. And then he chose to ride a colt, which is a young, unbroken donkey and never been ridden before. And, and the disciples did what Jesus asked. And God, I, it's just interesting. I, I have a friend who's planning to go to Jerusalem this summer with, with some of his buddies, and I've been, and so he reached out to me and asked me some details. Hey, tell me about, tell me about Jerusalem. Tell me about Israel. Where should I go? Where should I stay? Uh, he's going to rent a car, and he's got some buddies that are going with him. 
And so, yeah, I mean, we all have to make travel arrangements. Well, what's the big deal about Jesus' travel arrangements? What do we care if this donkey is used or new? Black or white? How much mileage is on it? Huh? This is why. Verses 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Jesus is coming in to fulfill God's promises from hundreds of years before. Hundreds of years before. Honestly, thousands of years before. If you go all the way back to Genesis, but, but this is the specific prophet that's quoted. And as I said before, his name is Zechariah. Zechariah was a minor prophet in Israel. And this was the time that Israel was released from captivity from her enemies. And now the Israelites, the Jews, they can go home. But their home is a wreck. Jerusalem is a wasteland. The walls are down. The temple has been destroyed. There's, there's nothing glorious. No one even wants to live in Jerusalem. It is a pit and wild animals have been living there. So these people come back. Maybe they're excited to rebuild. And then they see the mess that's in front of them. And they experience opposition because people are fighting them once they go back. They're under spiritual warfare. Their sin in the leadership. They're defeated and discouraged. And into this context, God speaks to Zechariah and offers them hope. He says, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. This is Zechariah 9.9. It should be on the screen. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations. I know your leaders have let you down. I know things are in shambles. I know there's conflict. I know there's stress and anxiety. I see you. And I, the living God, have not forgotten you. In fact, I'm going to send you a king. And here's how you know he's coming and it's him and he's arrived. He's going to be humbly riding in on a donkey coming into Jerusalem. So did Jesus know in his, his sovereign knowledge as, as fully God in his, in his divine nature that there is a donkey and a colt that headed him in the village? Disciples, go and get it. It's possible. He, he does know all things. So he could have done that. Or he might have just made arrangements ahead of time. Because Jesus is smart and he plans ahead. Neither one of those takes away from the story. Here's the point. He is choosing the donkey to ride in. The king has come. The time is now. And you can either accept him or reject him. But you can't deny the fact that he's here. And he will cut off the weapons and he will speak peace to the nations. How badly do we need peace as a nation? How badly does your family need peace? Your workplace. Oh man, we need it. We need it bad. Jesus is that king. He's such a good and gracious and loving king. He's wise and sovereign. Is he your king? Because that's another thing Zechariah says. He says, daughter of Jerusalem, your king is coming to you. Do you find yourself in that passage? Is he your king? Or are you still not sure what to make of this 
man from Nazareth and what he teaches. That's where the crowds were. Are we eager to accept him as ruler over our lives? Because Jesus said in John 14, 23, if you love me, if you receive me and you bring me in, you will keep my commands. In other words, you're going to bow the knee. Yes, he's king and Lord. I receive him. I receive the values of his kingdom. I put his good and his life and his will and his way over mine. Think about the owner of that donkey. Jesus said, when you tell them the Lord has need of those donkeys, the owner's going to be okay with it because the Lord needs them. Well, if the Lord needs them, of course. And, and do you need a saddle? Do you, do you need food? Do you need drink? I mean, I can imagine it's a big deal to let Jesus ride on your donkey. That's my donkey. <laughs> Jesus took my donkey. You know, like you're, you're elbowing your guys in the crowd. Y'all be doing the same thing. And Jesus walked in. He said, hey, I need a ride. Yeah, absolutely, Jesus. I will. You can borrow mine, but mine's a hunk of junk. I'll go rent you one. Jesus, just, yeah, don't, don't go anywhere. Stay right here. I'll, the airport's right down the road. I'll, I'll get you one. I don't care what it costs. Because the Lord needs them. He needs that I obey. But do we really treat Jesus that way in our lives? Or are we so comfortable with him? The comfortable with he's a friend. He's, uh, you know, he forgives all my sins. So I just, you know, I just kind of chill with Jesus. And some parts of the Bible I obey. Some parts I don't. You know, that's okay. Remember, he is king overall. He could come in and bring judgment. And one day he will. But right now he's coming in offering peace and mercy. Now is the time to receive him. To ask for forgiveness of your sins. To bow the knee. So the Lord says, I want you to put your sin away and repent. Yes, Lord. Whatever you want. He says, I want you to demonstrate your faith. In baptism. In communion. In joining in with a local church where you can grow and be fed. Yes, Lord. I want you to teach your children to walk in my ways. Yes, Lord. I want your money and your resources because they're far better used for my kingdom than spending it all at Buffalo Wild Wings and, and you know, on that house that you don't need all that space. I, I want you to give and be generous to the poor. I want you to spend time with me in prayer today. Yes, Lord. You have my time. You have my focus. I want you to love your brothers and sisters in the flock. Even when they're not lovely. I want you to love your enemy. Yes. Lord. If you want me to. I will obey. When the king comes. When he shows up. Life ceases to be. How it has been before. Here's the second thing that the king does. He claims his house. He doesn't just come. He authoritatively cleans house and takes it over. Now, you might assume once the king rides into town, isn't he going to go to the government seat? And he'll clear out the government and he'll set up his own form of government. Well, that's what the Jews wanted. We'll talk more about that in a minute. That's not where he goes. Where does he go? To the temple. He entered the temple, which, by the way, Mark makes it clear that Sunday was a long day, and when Jesus actually got into the temple, he looked around, and there was just enough time for him and his disciples to go back out, go back up the Mount of Olives, and stay the night in Bethany. So it's this big, dramatic entrance, and then they go back, and it's Monday morning, first thing. What does the king do when he shows up to work? 
he enters the temple and he drives out all of the merchants and the money changers and people making sales in the temple because Jesus sees a problem here. What does he see? Problem after problem. There are people who are selling sacrifices at the temple at like Disney level pricing. Just exorbitant costs. And these are poor, average, common folk. They've traveled from out of town. They've brought their own sacrifices that are good according to the law. These are pure sacrifices. And the, the religious leaders paid these money changers and the priests. It was a whole corrupt system. To look at these animals and say, mm, I find a little flaw. You see that, that little tuft of hair? It's in the wrong place. It's no good. You have to buy one of our animals right here. Oh, and it's five times the cost of one of the animals that you got from your town or from your own herd. And money changes hands. Oh, you got to go to the money changer because we don't accept the coin that you have. You have to, you, it's like you're entering a foreign country. You have to use this, this special temple coin, the temple tax, and then you can buy the animal. Oh, and it's going to cost you extra in interest to you get your money changed and then buy the sacrifice. And then by this point, do you think anyone's feeling in a worshipful mood? They've just been robbed blind by their religious leaders. Oh, and they can't even really focus, especially if they're a Gentile, because all the animals are making commotion behind them. Do you see the problem? The king's not having it. He drives them all out. If you ever thought, well, Jesus doesn't get mad. Jesus is just nice and sweet. He plays with the kids. and He was flipping over tables. He fashioned a whip and he drove them out. He didn't hit them. He didn't punch them. He wasn't out of control and in a rage. Some, some movies portray him that way. No, he's zealous that God's house would be a place of prayer, not of greed. It's the exact opposite. It's so corrupt. And the religious leaders are over there collecting money on the side. This is God's temple. We're told all throughout the Old Testament, the temple is not just this man-made idea. Exodus 25, Isaiah 56, Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah 52, Malachi 1. It's called the house of God. And here comes Jesus, and he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Do you think there's any doubt at all that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he's the son of God? He could have said, my father's house, and then we could have debates with, with the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. Oh, man, he's just, you know, he's a perfect man, but he's not God. He says, this is my house. Get out. And then he controls the Temple Mount for the entire week. So all day Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. If our timeline matches up to the biblical account, I think that's what we arrive at. He's arrested Thursday night, and he is crucified on on friday four days he controls this temple complex i'm like okay so you know kind of like a building like this no yeah. you know how big the temple complex was four and a half football fields long is how big the temple complex was in herod's day when herod built that that complex it was massive and also it got um 10 to 16 stories tall from the from the, the base of the, temp, um, of the temple mount up to the top of the temple. So if you were on the other side of the city, the temple mount is raised up, and then you have the temple even higher. 
This is the pinnacle of the city. This is, I mean, this is amazing. It, I'm, I'm trying to think of, okay, so like the National Mall in Washington, D.C. From the Washington Monument to the Lincoln Memorial, Jesus kicks them all out and he keeps them out all week long. You can only come there if you want to hear the truth, worship God, offer sacrifices, or be healed. I have no time for the vendors. This is our Jesus. He says, my house is open to all people. I use my power and authority not for my benefit, but for yours. He cleared out the greedy ones so the poor ones could come near. He cast out the privileged who took advantage of their privileges to help those who were disadvantaged. That's my Jesus. That's my king. His kingdom is one of love and truth. And he's a global king. He's for all people and he gives us full access. But I know what you're thinking. Josh, he only controlled the temple for four days. And then, you know, cross. So, so what about that? You know, did he get kicked out of his own house? No. God cast the ultimate trump card and shows that all along, God has not been living in a place made with human hands. His temple is where his spirit is. And after his resurrection, he, or actually before his resurrection at the Last Supper, he tells his disciples, the Holy Spirit is coming. The Spirit of God is going to come and he's going to live in you and he's going to be with you forever. You will never be apart from God again. And Paul elaborates in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple? You are God's temple. God's spirit dwells in you. Okay, okay. I think I'm, I think I'm getting the picture here. So that's why the temple is no longer significant in God's redemptive plan. If you go to Jerusalem, I mean, you should go see it. But it's not the temple anymore. It's the Dome of the Rock, and there's the Western Wall. But you're going to see how huge these stones are, and you're going to imagine how impressive this building was. You're going to see why the disciples were like, Jesus, look at these awesome buildings. Because they're, they're awesome. They're great. What's even more amazing is that God can take the heart of his enemy, take the sin out, restore us, to a right relationship with him and put his spirit inside of us making us the living temple of god and that's something that i don't build with my hands you didn't build it either it's god's hands god did that work to god be the glory to, to the glory be jesus and in matthew 28 18 to 20 he tells us by this authority by my kingship and what I've done on the cross in the empty grave, I want you to therefore go and make disciples of all nations. So friends, if God's spirit is in you, now he works through you to spread his peace to all people. If the king has come, what's changed? Me. I've changed. And now I go and I testify. I have this microphone because Jesus saved me and he gave me a message to share. Not any glory to Josh or, oh, Josh can preach. No, not Josh at all. Jesus. All authority belongs to Jesus. The glory belongs to Jesus. It's his house. We simply provide a place of worship for people to come. Bring your brokenness, your cares, your worries. Lay them at Jesus' feet. He is here in our midst.
You know how we know that? Because his spirit is within. That's his gift to us. And I love it. When Christ is exalted, people are helped. Look what he does with the blind and the lame in verse 14. He heals them. Before, they didn't fit into this religious, idolatrous, greedy setup in the temple complex. They're all waiting at the pool of Siloam, hoping that they get healed, hoping they get better. But then they hear there's a new sheriff in town. And this king is gracious, and he wants them to come in. And he's made a way, and he's driven out the animals, the inconvenience. He says, just come, and I will heal you. And they come, and they're healed. It's not an empty promise. If you have not come to the king yet and repented of your sins and bowed the knee, he will heal your broken heart. I'm not saying he's going to make all your problems go away and, oh, your family is just going to be this perfect, picture-perfect movie Hallmark or Hallmark movie family. No. There's still issues in this world. But he starts the healing process in your heart, teaches you his ways, and as you follow his ways, you see, wow, God's kingdom really is the way to go. The world can't see it. The world's too busy hating and loving their sin and walking in darkness, but I see it now. Jesus, your kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. And when you come back, I can see it now. All things will be made new. And there's no strings attached to that offer. It reminds me of a story I heard. I don't know if it's true or not. You can Google it. Maybe you can do a little bit of research in and, and uh, you know, I got a smart nephew there. I, I bet he could figure this out. But Alexander the Great, he had a lot of stories told about him because his empire was so fast reaching. And in his 30s, he owned like a quarter of the world. This guy was impressive and fabulously wealthy. There was one time where he had a general who came up to him and he said, hey, hey Alexander, or whatever he called him, you know, your magnificence, would you be willing to pay for my daughter's wedding? Weddings aren't cheap, you know, ordinarily, right? You do it all yourself, you can, you can get by a little bit, but we all know, okay, a wedding, there'll be some costs, you know, you gotta pay for the catering, you gotta pay for the venue, you gotta pay for the dress. Yeah, okay, I'll pay for it. So he agreed, this general has served faithfully, why not? So the general goes out, and he and his daughter, they pay for the most luxurious, extravagant, ridiculously expensive things. This wedding is going to be the most costly single day event or single week event in like human history. This is crazy. And people start coming to Alexander and they say, your general is taking advantage of your generosity. Now, you agree to pay for a wedding. This is more than a wedding. This is like a holy holiday they're turning this into, and the whole kingdom is being involved. Now, Alexander thought about it. He says, you know what? I'm actually impressed. Because he thinks highly enough of me, and that I have enough wealth that I will pay for all of this junk. And you know what? I will. I'm going to still pay for it. Not his daughter, not his family, but the general trusted that Alexander would bankroll it. And as I, as I think about our King Jesus, do we really trust him to bankroll our lives with his grace? No matter what you've done, 
no matter what regrets or shame you have in your past, and no matter what you're going to face tomorrow, or you run to somebody that says, there's no way God could love me, right? and there's no way he could forgive me for what I've done. Oh, you have such a low view of our king. Let me tell you about him. He heals the lame. He heals the blind. You're going to be impressed when you see Jesus for who he is. And here's a final thought I want to give before I conclude, or as I conclude. There is a warning in this text for those who would reject the king and push him away. He is king. He's presented himself. It's very clear when he raises from the dead, you know for sure he is who he says he is. And his gospel is the only way to heaven. But faith involves a crisis point. We all have it. Will I believe or will I not? The Pharisees said, we either bow the knee to this guy or we have to fight him to the death. It's him or us because we're not giving up our little kingdom. He's got to go. They were indignant. He was trampling on their schemes, their rights, their authority, their respect. They really had made it a den of robbers. And he's coming in here and he wants the people and, and the authority and the crowds. And the crowds also. A lot of them didn't even understand who Jesus was, but the little bit they did know, they're like, oh, he's a prophet. He's a prophet from, you know, Nazareth of Galilee. It's like if Michael Jordan walked in here, the greatest basketball player to ever play the game, and I'm not even going to argue with you about it. He is. He is, right? He just is. If he comes in here and you're like, oh, it's that basketball player from Wilmington, North Carolina. What? What a disrespectful statement to say. He's so much more than that. But the crowds, oh, he's the prophet from Galilee. But Hosanna, Lord, save us now. We're in this sticky situation with Rome. Can you get us out? We're tired of paying taxes. We want our respect back. So we'll bring Jesus in. But as long as he fits into my plans and my kingdom. You know, we do the same thing today. Oh, Jesus would be in the elephant party. Jesus would be in the donkey party. Okay? Jesus would be pro-gun. Jesus would be anti-gun. Jesus would be pro-this and anti-that. And, oh, let's, let's talk about that. Have you even read your Bible? Oh, it's hilarious what people put out on, on Twitter. They're yelling at each other for not reading their Bible while being total jerks to each other. None of y'all have read your Bible. <laughs> or... You haven't bowed the knee to Jesus. It's the root problem. You can have the entire word of God and you can read it and you can memorize the whole thing. Satan knows it better than you. But Satan hasn't bowed the knee to Jesus. Have you? Because there's a warning here if you do not. True followers of Jesus understand that Christ is the ultimate goal. He is the prize. He is also the final judge. And he will return again soon on a white horse to judge the living and the dead. He will completely set up his kingdom. And because he's in a glorified state and God's purposes have been accomplished, he's not coming anymore submitting to the Roman authority. He's not coming anymore to suffer on the cross. He did that. And he has now been exalted and lifted up. He is high overall. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And when he comes, he will not tolerate rebellion anymore he says today's the day to ask for mercy as I willingly give it 
to you. And I also worry about the American church. Maybe worry is the right word. I'm burdened for the American church. Because we talk about Jesus a whole lot. But when you look at our lives, there's so much of our life that we have not placed under the lordship of Jesus. We talk a good game. And on Easter Sunday, I guarantee you, tons of churches will be filled with people. But then where do they go the rest of the year? I did my thing. I did my bow the knee, or I did the cross, I took communion on Easter. What more do you want? God wants your whole life. He wants your tongue. He wants your heart. He wants your eyes. He wants your ears. He wants your love. He wants your obedience. Because he is king. So as I conclude this morning, is Jesus the absolute king of your life today? There's not one area in your life that you are knowingly holding back from Jesus. No, I'm not going to do that. Or that feels really good to do this and God will forgive me anyways. Do you not trust the king of all grace? He is better than what you're holding on to. If there is an area of your life that is not under Jesus' lordship, I invite you to confess that and give it to him. Now, give it to him today. I'm going to invite our, our worship team up here. And I also want to invite us as a church, because we are part of the American church. Do I think we're a little bit healthier than the average American church? Maybe. But I also know people. And I know it's just really easy to live one way, but back at home, we're a different person. So I think we, as the church, need to confess that sometimes we have treated Jesus as a commodity rather than the ultimate one who deserves everything that we have. If all we have for the end of our days and for eternity, forever and ever, if all we had was to sit at Jesus' feet, to be with him, and to hear him, and to do his will, would that be enough for us? If not, we need to repent. Because our desires have gone after the world, and not after Christ. And I pray that we as a church will always operate fully under the authority of Christ. This is his church. He will do with it what he wants.